Welcome. Here at The Bridge Church, we exist to help you connect to God, grow with family, and serve our city. We hope today's message will allow you to grow deeper in your connection to God. Enjoy the message. Greetings, Bridge Church. Welcome to the third week of our series, True Story, Five Truths About God and the Church. This series is particularly personal uh, for me um, because several years ago, um, you know, I grew up in church and uh, my dad was a pastor and things like that. And I was just getting by as a believer. You know, I I just kind of regurgitated. I learned something called Christianese and I knew how to speak it well. Uh, And then one day, you know, I get married and I realize like, oh man, a lot of these things that I was saying, I actually have to walk it out. And I realized that some of these things made sense in my head, but they didn't make sense in my heart. And so I started to question, and I started to doubt. And slowly but surely, I came to a place where I said, you know what, maybe I don't actually believe any of this stuff. And I declared myself an atheist. And I walked in that for about a year. I was a good atheist too. I was converting Christians and doing all types of stuff. Very terrible. Um, And then one day I came across a book by a man named Tim Keller called The Reason for God. And that book completely transformed my whole life. And it it answered all the questions that I was having. And from that point on, I just was laser beam on Jesus Christ, just wanting to be in intimacy and relationship with him. And so this story, this true story is something that's very important for me because it's sermons and books like this that brought me back to faith. And so as I communicate this to you guys, it's not so much just a message that I've prepared, but it's really just a biography to an extent. The stuff that we're talking about in this series is of grave importance, especially this idea of suffering. How can God allow suffering? And this is a very tough message for me to bring to you actually today, because today, today I'm suffering. Just scrolling through my Facebook timeline, I start to feel, you know, that burning sensation behind your eyes, you know, right before the tears come. Run down your cheeks. Hands up, unarmed and dead is a narrative that I can't take anymore. And I see many people looking to us, the Christians, and they're saying, where is your God? How could he be cool with this? So they come up with their own conclusion, because we're not saying anything. They come up with their own conclusion about God based on what they observe. And their conclusion can be best illustrated in a small clip I want to show you guys from a movie called Batman v Superman. Character speaking in this clip is a man named Lex Luthor, and he's talking to Superman about his thoughts on God. Check it out. Problems up here. The problem of of evil in the world. Uh, The problem of absolute virtue. I'll take you in without breaking you, which is more than you deserve. The problem of you on top of everything else. You above all. Ah, because that's what God is. Horus, Apollo, Jehovah, Kal-El, Clark, Joseph, Kent. See, what we call God depends upon our tribe, Clark Joe. Because God is tribal. God takes sides. 
No man in the sky intervened when I was a boy to deliver me from daddy's fist and abominations. Mm. I figured out way back. God is all-powerful. He cannot be all-good. And if he is all-good, then he cannot be all-powerful. That's right. So yeah, that's the big question. If God is all-powerful, then he cannot be all-good. And if he's all-good, then he cannot be all-powerful. What does that mean? Well, that means that God can end suffering, but he doesn't because he's mean, terrible God. Or that God wants to end suffering, but he can't because he's a weak God. Those are the two solutions that they've come to. How can the Christian believe in a God that wants to end suffering and has the ability to end suffering, but he doesn't? This is the very question that I'll be addressing for the rest of my time up here. How can the God of the Bible allow suffering? You know, the interesting thing about this question is that it actually affects the Christian and the non-Christian in a very similar way. The question that this brings up brings you really to the core of faith. Because even for you who believe, when tragedy strikes, it brings you right to the edges of your faith. Face to face with that decision that you made when you said, not my will, God, but yours be done. Did you really mean that? This is not Child's Play Bridge Church. The idea of a loving God and the struggle of suffering can bring us to question God's existence itself. This is why we need the true story. Today we're going to be talking about three points. How does the all-God, all-powerful dilemma influence belief in God? How does the all-good, all-powerful dilemma influence how one sees the world? And how does the all-good, all-powerful dilemma influence how I see myself? So starting with point one, how does it affect your belief in God? So there's a philosopher. His name is J.L. Mackey. Um, He's an atheist philosopher, actually. And he had this to say. Um, He said, if a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. But because there is much pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God cannot exist. And if we turn to our Bibles, let's see if we can find a response to what J.L. Mackey had to say. Let's look at Genesis chapter 37, verses 26 to 28. So there's this man, his name is Joseph. He lives in Canaan with his family. He's the favored child of that family, and that makes his brothers very upset. Not only that, but this guy Joseph has a lot of dreams, and Joseph likes to share those dreams. So one day, Joseph shares this dream with his family that somehow his brothers were going to bow to him, and his already irate brothers did not like this. The brothers had had enough with Joseph toting around his favor. Who does this Joseph guy think he is? So, they're thinking about the possibility of murdering Joseph. Let's jump in and hear what they're saying. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, 
our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Let's go down to uh, verse 36. So meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So what ended up happening was some people came by and they're like, oh man, we buy slaves. And they're like, man, we got a slave for you, our brother named Joseph. Here's 20 pieces of silver, hold that. And they gave him up and he went with them. And they were like, man, wonder what we can get for Joseph. And they're like, hey man, we're gonna sell him to Potiphar. So not only is he enslaved, but now he's going right to the, to the head. He's going to Pharaoh's officials, right? So he's definitely going to get put to work here. So as we end chapter 37, it's on a very dreary note. Joseph is in a very bad place. And we feel like, man, his brothers have completely sold him out basically to die. But if we look at Genesis 39, as it starts out in verses 2 through 4, there's a bit of a plot twist. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. My issue with J.L. Mackey's statement is timing. He cannot say pointless evil because he is not telling us at what point he is making that assessment. See, if you're Joseph's friend in Canaan, where you're living and you see this dude, he loves the Lord and he loves his family, and you see this guy get carted off to slaves and sold, he loves God more than you do. He has dreams that mean things you don't. He has a great big family that you don't have. His father loves him. You have no father. You don't even know your dad. It should have been you. If anyone deserves to live a good life, it's Joseph. I should take his place. It looks pointless. It looks pointless because at the current stage in your life, you're in chapter 37. But in the beginning of 39, it's a complete change. See, 37 was just a setup for 39. The setback was a setup for a comeback. So Joseph, you like that? So Joseph, <laughs> Joseph is, would go against what Mackey is saying about pointless evil. Had he assessed him in, verse, in chapter 39, it would have been a much different assessment than in chapter 37. Timing. The second issue I have with Mackey's statement is that it takes an incredible amount of faith to make the kind of statements that he's making, which is very funny because Mackey's an atheist. He's giving his mental capacity way too much credit. He's actually saying that if you personally can't see any justification for a tragedy, then there isn't any justification. See, but that's the problem. You can only see from your own finite perspective. You know, uh, uh, the same guy who wrote Reason for God, Pastor Tim Keller, um, very influential in my life, he had this amazing illustration. And he said, imagine a baby being born. You're the baby, right? You're coming out, you're covered in all types of crap, and like 
there's doctors everywhere. There's like a blade coming to cut something off of you. You're crying. No one seems to care. The woman that, you know, you feel affection for is like crying. They're taking you away from her. They're wiping you down. They're spraying you with stuff. From that perspective, you're upside down sometimes. From that perspective, you just coming into this new world, people are giant. They're like seven times your size. You don't understand it. It's complete pandemonium from the perspective of the baby. But from the perspective of the parents, they know that everyone in that room is trying to save that baby's life. It's a perspective shift. If we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25, it says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. Even if God could be foolish, even if he had a bad day or a dumb moment, it would still be wiser and smarter than our best moment. It is still better than us at our very smartest. God can be trusted. Our ability to see justification in things that God allows is severely handicapped because our perspective is finite and God's is infinite. Mackey's point about pointless evil disproving God falls apart because it does not take into account the timing of the analysis and the eyes through which you are viewing the issue. The timing and the perspective. But you know what? Maybe that's not enough for you. Maybe despite what I've just said, you still feel like God may not exist because of all the evil that you see in this world. I would caution you on that thought. Uh, Author C.S. Lewis had this to say. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? You see, you can't borrow God's moral law to explain that he doesn't exist. If he does not exist, then you don't have words like just or unjust in the first place. Moral law tells us what is right and what is wrong. Atheism and naturalism says survival of the fittest. What is good is whatever will benefit me. Removing God from the equation does not fix the suffering problem. It actually makes it worse because now you have no hope. And in actuality, if you feel so deeply moved by the evil in the world... You actually have a very strong argument for belief in God because you know the world is not operating as it was originally intended. Which brings us to point two. How does the all-good, all-powerful dilemma influence how one sees the world? You might be saying, hey, Rich, but I believe in God. So that first point wasn't for me. I'm just trying to wrap my head around the stuff that we cannot control. What about freak accidents, earthquakes, diseases, avalanches, forest fires, tsunamis? It feels like these things come right from God. Why are these allowed to consume so many lives? Those are really tough questions. But you know what I hate? Whenever you are watching the news and you, you see the news anchors kind of talking about one of those topics, they call it an act of God. But when it's a nice sunny day with like a cool breeze... He don't get no credit. <laughs> so crazy. <laughs> we must first understand we live in a broken world. 
In Genesis chapter 3, we have the familiar story of Adam and Eve. Satan coerces Eve to eat from the tree that God said not to, and she shares the fruit with Adam. And in doing so, it ruins the relationship between God and man. Death, exhaustion, and pain enter into the human existence for the first time. Sin becomes a curse on the human existence, and it takes a toll on the people, and it takes a toll on the planet. Romans 8.22 talks about creation groaning in pain. God allows the earth to reflect the consequences that sin has had on creation. So even the tectonic plates shifting on the earth's crust that give rise to earthquakes and tsunamis are all a part of that fall. So we understand why these events occur, but I know the thing that bothers you most is when it takes so many lives. And to be honest, the full answer to this question is not known. We will ask this question until the day Christ returns. Why God? We must remember that God has infinite wisdom and infinite perspective. He sees everything from an eternal and omnipresent angle. All powerful, all good, and all wise is someone you can trust is always for your benefit. Now, in no way am I looking to justify these disasters myself because I too am coming from a finite perspective. But there are so many people that I know who have changed after a major tragedy. Christian ministries have the opportunity to go in and counsel, pray for, lead, and, and bring people into a, a relationship with Jesus Christ at these times. During trying times, God can and does bring great good from natural disasters. So you may be saying to yourself, okay, Rich, you're right. Evil and suffering is not evidence against the existence of God. An all-powerful and all-good God can exist because he is also all-wise. I realize I can't actually fathom every way that an event can affect a person or a group of people. I also realize that I can't quantify that as well. I don't actually know when to make that calculation. And also nature reflects the brokenness of our world. Even the inhabitants, God uses the events to save people and bring them closer to him. I get all that. But what about evil? What about suffering that comes from the hands of evil people? People who want to do harm. You know, you might be saying, Rich, enough with the history lesson. You know, what about today? You know, what about Terrence Crutcher? What about Keith Lamont Scott? Does God care about the issues of police brutality in this country? Because that's actually why I'm suffering right now. Let's look at John chapter 18, verse 12. So this is uh, coming up to Jesus' crucifixion. This is when he gets arrested. And it says, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. If the story of how Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane in the first century AD was reported in the news today, it would probably read as such. Unarmed man arrested by police, tortured and murdered. When I was thinking about this issue of police brutality, it occurred to me that Jesus himself was a victim. The Jewish temple police and Roman soldiers who were involved in arresting and torturing him were the law enforcement officers of his day. 
They were part of a largely corrupt system that was designed to protect the interests of the wealthy, powerful, and the privileged at the expense of the common people. Jesus was a voice for the oppressed, and he paid the ultimate price for it. And I refuse to present Jesus simply as a deity who cared only for the soul of a person and not for the socio-political conditions that surrounded them. If you want the true story, Jesus knows exactly what it's like to be abused by the powers that be. And as a church, we must expose the violence of the powerful and stand in solidarity with the oppressed. Let's go further in that same chapter of John, chapter 18, down to verses 19 to 23. You know, the high priest then questions Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered them, I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And it continues on. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? What I said is right, why do you strike me? An officer becomes so enraged with the manner in which Jesus spoke to the authorities, he struck him in the face and asked, is that how you answer the priest? Jesus replying in defiance says, if what I said is right, why did you strike me? With his hands in chains and his mouth full of blood, Jesus demonstrates what we should be demanding. Truth and accountability from abusive law enforcement officers. When Jesus asked, why did you strike me? He was not only speaking for himself, but on behalf of every human being who's ever felt the dehumanizing blow of brutality. When we say that Jesus was well acquainted with grief or familiar with sorrow, we know that this includes the socio-political issues of the day. When we say he was pierced for our transgressions or bruised for our iniquities, we have to ask the question, who profits from that piercing and who profited from those bruises? The struggle of Jesus forces us to demand all violent authority figures to be held accountable and live in the light of the truth. As a church, we stand with the brutalized and we ask the question, why did you strike me? As we make demands of our city officials to stand for the truth and to see the brutalizers held accountable for their actions. Jesus knows that level of suffering all too well. And he wants to comfort you through it. But the question many of us are asking is, why be comforted through it? Why not eliminate it? Why won't God just get rid of all the criminals in the world? Why won't God crush racist cops? Why won't God just kill all the terrorists? You have a picture. Is this, is this what evil looks like? What about the next one? Is that, is that evil? Are these the bad people that we need to get rid of? What about them? Is it them? 
Or perhaps we're asking the wrong question. Perhaps it starts somewhere else. Perhaps it starts with me. Which brings me to point three. How the all-good, all all-powerful dilemma affects how I understand myself. You know, if we want God to eliminate all of the evil in the world, we need to stop using the word they and them all the time. Because if we really want God to eliminate all the evil in the world, we would have to eliminate the evil that's in me. If we really want God to eliminate evil on the planet, he would have to eliminate all of us. You know, the person that I love the most on this whole planet is my wife, who's sitting right there. But I'm also... Let that be <laughs> Talk about it. <laughs> but I'm also the person that causes her the most emotional pain and the most grief. I hurt people every single day. Unaware, I know I have even hurt some of you in this very congregation. I am the reason for your suffering at some point. We all are. I am a participant in the brokenness of this world. So thanks be to God that instead of wiping us all off the planet, he sent his son to pay the cost, to take the penalty for sin. You know, see, sometimes the headline reads, innocent man gunned down. But that man is only innocent for the crime he's been accused of. Jesus was innocent of any crime he could be accused of. He was perfect in every way. None of us are innocent. We are guilty of something, something worthy of death and the grave. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. But Jesus came on the scene and he gave us a way out. That whosoever would believe in him would have everlasting life. The only thing that can change the human heart and its lust for sin and its lust for destruction is a relationship with Jesus Christ. It gives us the promise in Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So when we see the atrocities, we can hold on to this. Know that despite the horror on the TV screen, God is moving the pieces for your good to teach me, to mold me, to discipline me, to love me, to bless me. And even on the topics of horrors, atrocities, murders, rapes, serial killers, the greatest atrocity ever in the history of the human existence is still that. It's still Christ on the cross, the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ the completely innocent taking on the worst punishment of all punishments, which is abandonment from the Father. Suffering, that's the worst suffering ever recorded in human history. So even though the question of why God allows suffering remains a bit of a mystery, you are never alone. You can be in relationship with the all-powerful, all-loving, and all-wise God who works everything out for your good. But the sad part is, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, that verse is not your verse. 
That verse does not apply to you. It only works for the good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, there is no chapter 39. All you got is chapter 37. Because remember, Potiphar saw that Joseph walked with the Lord. And that's what gave him favor. He went from slave to royalty because he knew the king, the king of kings. We live in a fallen world where creation groans in pain and grief, where people are plagued by sin, by a desire to please themselves, to seek power by any means necessary. But Jesus extends a lifeline of hope in this life, and he gives us a promise for the life that is to come. Revelation 21, verse 4. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Now listen, if you've never made a decision to accept Jesus Christ into your life, I urge you that the time is now. Do not leave this building without doing so today. You know, we have some lovely people in the back that are there to pray with you if you want to make that decision as the musicians continue to play. Or maybe it's not about salvation. Maybe you just hear this message and you realize, man, I doubt God. I'm in a time of suffering now that is causing me to doubt his existence, doubt his power, doubt his will for my life. They're there to pray for you as well. So as the band continues to play and the vocalists continue to sing, know that you can just go right to the back and make that decision. Get that chapter 39 in your life. Allow that verse that says that God is working it out for your good. Let that be a promise that you can bank on. Because it's a crazy world. And we all need Jesus Christ. Amen. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. We'd love to hear how God used this sermon to speak to you. Please take a minute to email us your story. Our email address is info at bridgechurchnyc.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using at bridgechurchnyc or visit our website, bridgechurchnyc.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's message.